Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to this special live recording of the Cynic Podcast, coming to you from the story bookworm right here in the great city of Beijing. Let's hear you make some noise, Beijing. Happy Lantern Festival, everybody. We're really pleased that you decided to spend it with us. Thank you to David Moser for doing the technical stuff. The Seneca Podcast is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SubChina, which is a great way to keep on top of all the important news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter which I now edit, so forgive the self-promotion, and a smartphone app and a website. Sadly, Kaiser Gore can't join us today. He had an air ticket mix-up uh, and will only be on the plane tomorrow morning. And I know you were promised Simon and Garfunkel and you just got Garfunkel. <laughs> um, but Kaiser sends his deepest regrets. Um, and as we have a true rock star of journalism as guest today, I trust you will forgive us. Today we're going to talk about China's foreign relations in a time of tremendous uncertainty. With us to talk about it is someone who's been covering international relations for many years, Jane Perlez of the New York Times. Welcome to Seneca, Jane. Thank you. So although or perhaps because Jane grew up in America's implacable antibidian foe, Australia. <laughs> I'm glad you follow the news. <laughs> She's been writing for the New York Times since 1981. She first came to this fair city in 2012, or she first came for the New York Times, this first fair city in 2012, um, to be the paper's first chief diplomatic correspondent. Um, and last year, she became the Beijing bureau chief. Jane won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009 uh, for the, uh, her coverage of the war against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Pakistan and Afghanistan. She has covered wars, diplomacy, and foreign policy from Somalia to Poland to Indonesia and many places in between, right? Sort of. <laughs> Since moving to Beijing, she's written about everything from China's space program to the Dixie Mission, which is the group of Americans sent to Mao Zedong's revolutionary base at Yan'an, uh, who hoped to establish good relations between the U.S. and the soon-to-be-victorious Chinese communists. But much of her reporting has focused on China's foreign policy, in particular its relations with the United States and its Asian neighbors. So she is the ideal interpreter for us as we try to understand Chinese foreign relations in the age of the orange emperor. 
Welcome to Seneca again, Jen. <laughs> so I'd like to start with a question about the phone call. So on, sorry, I, I really don't want to talk about Donald Trump, but we have to. <laughs> so on Wednesday, news broke that Donald Trump had, as the White House statement put it, provided a letter to Xi Jinping, uh, full of bromides about how, you know, let's get along. And then on, th well, Thursday, New York time, like Friday here, the news broke that there was a phone call between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping. What's your take on what went on? Well, a lot of negotiating went on, and I wish we knew what really what really went on in those negotiations. So the drama started, as you know, when uh, Trump's people organized a phone call from the president of Taiwan, uh, President Tsai, on December the 2nd. And uh, the Chinese immediately reacted with very firm statement that the one China policy was non-negotiable, no questions to be asked about it. After that, you know, and then Trump did a tweet saying, in an interview saying, one China policy should be negotiable because maybe I can get something from them on uh, South China Sea and trade and a few other things. And the Chinese stood very firm. I think that the Chinese just decided to um, see how good a negotiator he was. And I think they turned out to be the better negotiators. They were very patient. They were very firm. Um, I think Jared Kushner did the main negotiating. I think there's a question mark right there. Uh, Kushner's uh, real estate firm is in negotiations with Angbang, a big, the big insurance company, for a major infusion of capital into his big project, into his big building on Fifth Avenue. So it's certainly in uh, Jared Kushner's interest to have a stable uh, U.S.-China relationship, and I think that. That was the starting point, and then uh, gradually it began to dawn on responsible people around Trump, like Tillerson and Mattis, that the Chinese were serious about uh, one China policy, that it was non-negotiable, and then Jared sent his wife and child to the uh, embassy uh, 10 days ago. Uh, and the Chinese were very effusive about that and showed it all over uh, social media and television. And this was an example of the Chinese being very nice to the Americans, encouraging them along without paying anything themselves. Um, and then come the happy, happy new year letter. And again, the Chinese were very happy to receive this, encouraging, encouraging the Americans to come along. And then finally, the phone call. I think the bottom line is that Tillerson was at the White House just before the phone call, pointing out that the risks were too high to muck around with one China. And uh, Donald Trump, the great negotiator, had to step back and, and swallow a little bit of pride. So that makes um, sense? That does make sense. It makes complete sense. <laughs> it doesn't? <laughs> um, can I ask you about, there was a recent uh, report by a bipartisan task force on U.S.-China relations that was put together by the Asia Society and uh, the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California in San Diego. And the task force included a number of luminaries in China studies, journalism and foreign policy, including former Assistant Secretary of State Susan Shuck, um, 
Ovalshell uh, and Charlene Barshevsky, who was a key negotiator uh, on the U.S. side in, in China's entry into the World Trade Organization at the turn of the century. Um, and that, that report is kind of nuanced. Uh, I don't know if nuance is the right word. It, it, it's very it, boring. It's boring. Very predictable. It's predictable. So it urges Trump to take a tougher line on China, but it Barely. also um, uh, advises caution about upsetting the delicate balance of the status quo on issues like Taiwan and other Chinese sensitivities. What do you make of that report? Aside from clearly, you said, boring. Well, I think that after many American elections, there are a bunch of worthies get together and, well, I should say before the election, they get together and they travel the world. I noticed that they stopped at Oxford University and uh, Sunnylands in California and a couple of other really high-toned places to write their report. I shouldn't be so sarcastic, but really, it's a, it's a group of worthies who do know a lot about China, but the report is very unadventurous. Uh, Winston Lord, a former American ambassador here who actually came here with, with Kissinger in, when Kissinger negotiated the opening of China as a young China expert and then later became ambassador, he was the only one who wrote a dissent. They tackled the big topics, obviously, trade, economy, South China Sea, North Korea. But on North Korea, Winston Lord wrote one dissent saying that he really thought the United States should rapidly uh, impose secondary Iran-like sanctions on North Korea and China that would hurt China as a way of trying to solve this North Korean problem, which is the most immediate problem that I f think faces the Trump crowd. Trump was briefed by, on the North Korea problem and their soon to ability to be able to hit the United States with nuclear weapons by soon, five years, seven years, take your pick, uh, according to the experts. Uh, he was briefed on this uh, by Obama uh, shortly after the election. Uh, many people have said in the past few weeks that North Korea is the most important issue. Winston Lord reckon, reckons that uh, the United States should put hard and fast sanctions on North Korea and China to try and force uh, Kim Jong-un to make a choice between his survival, which he values above all else, and his nuclear weapons. Now, whether that's the right route to go, I'm not saying it is, but at least it was you know, a slightly different way of thinking than the usual, let's appoint a high-level high channel to discuss this, which is basically most of the solutions in this report. I think we've had enough high-level dialogues between the United States and China in the last um, eight years during the Obama administration, and there really has to be uh, some different approaches. The only problem is the person who's in charge of the different approaches is Trump, and that's not the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take a tour of the neighborhood. So what's your take on Beijing's calculus for some of the kind of regional problems in light of you know, President Trump. So maybe we can start with Japan. Japan, of course, is justifiably nervous about Trump. And Shinzo Abe made sure to meet with him during the transition. And in fact, I think right now is enjoying Trump's hospitality, possibly at the expense of the American taxpayer, or possibly Trump is making money from it, but at Mar-a-Lago in, in Florida. 
during the campaign, Trump was uh, very critical of Japan, calling it a free rider and seeming, seeming to wa- wave on U.S. treaty commitments. And many a reputable source also says that Trump just doesn't like Japan. Some of his early business reversals were dealt him by Japanese competitors. Uh, but uh, now Mattis uh, is talking about standing shoulder to shoulder with its allies in East Asia. And we've just had the phone call between Trump and Xi Jinping. Uh, how is Beijing reacting to this? I think this is one area, Japan is one area where Beijing is probably not very happy for reasons that we can talk about in a minute. I think they must be very happy about the rest of the region, in particular about Australia. But on Japan, I think that, again, I think that responsible people around Trump, meaning basically Tillerson and Mattis, I don't know of any others, um, have... (laughs) Have, t- have have told him, look, we've got to keep the troops there. Japan does pay a fair share um, of the cost of those troops. Maybe you can pay a bit more and probably will. Um, but you really need uh, Japan. And I think that's what's happening as, as we speak. Abe is uh, and Trump are playing golf in uh, Florida. Uh, Abe has some interesting ideas about uh, helping Trump with his infrastructure building in the United States. I mean, if I was Trump, I'd be mortified that I had to take help from another country. But anyway, Abe's offering this. And I think Abe was very clever uh, to go there very early on and uh, talk to Trump. because Abe had, had spent a lot of political capital in getting the uh, TPP through the Diet. And uh, Trump did, his, did him the disfavor of uh, abandoning TPP. But I think all in all, I think the Chinese must be a little bit worried about the, the, mending, uh, the mended bridges between uh, Japan and the United States. Okay. Australia, the place you grew up. The Prime Minister of your erstwhile home was the recipient of what seems to have been Trump's most hostile call to date with the foreign leader. <laughs> Yet Australia has, has been one of America's closest allies for decades, loyally following the U.S. into ill-advised wars, being one of the five eyes of the Anglophone intelligence community, uh, and supporting the U.S. through thick and thin. Nonetheless, how should Australia respond to China's rise, uh, you know, has, th- this has been a, a subject of of vigorous debate. Perhaps most prominently, Hugh Weiss, uh, who is a highly respected strategic analyst with a lot of res- uh, experience in Australia's defense and intelligence sectors, has been arguing for quite some time um, that, if I may reduce a, a fairly complex argument uh, to a soundbite, that Australia needs to come to some kind of accommodation with China that America may not wholly approve of. It's um, happening as we speak. I was just in Australia, and uh, I, 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 can't, I couldn't believe my eyes or ears. I think the Chinese have, have been very, very clever in Australia. It's a big prize for China, and they are winning. The confidence in Australia in the American alliance is, is weakening, and the Trump uh, phone call just weakened it further. It was really very foolish because the uh, American alliance among the population is, is very – the polls show 45% support. 
soon that'll be over uh soon that will 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 change it'll get it will get less and less why because the Australians see less and less benefit out of the relationship with the United States as you mentioned uh they've fought wars since they've fought alongside the United States since World War 1 uh the Americans came to their help in World War 2 but then the Australians fought in Vietnam and Iraq and now they have planes over Syria they don't see what they're getting for the this these military involvements with 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 the United States but they see what they're getting from China selling all their wine selling all their beef selling uh iron ore and coal and natural gas that has kept australia out of recession for more than a decade maybe it's it it's more. made it the, what do they call it the happy country well the lucky in, country in the in the 1960s the lucky country in the 1960s it was called the lucky country it's a kind of old fashioned phrase now but uh <laughs> maybe china has made it the luckier uh country uh but the trump phone call was really foolish so i I didn't originally plan on asking this but since we have like a front row full of kiwis how about New Zealand Well New Zealand uh, maybe we should ask the New Zealanders but I <laughs> uh I have a sense it's a similar pattern they're also uh have been historically very close military and security allies of the United States being part of the five eyes which means that their intelligence services share everything or almost everything with the United States. The New Zealanders are a little different, you understand. They they welcomed some Greenpeace boats a few years ago and you know there was a big fuss and there was a big breach in the alliance, but I think they're back in back. They were back in good odor in Washington. But they're in very good odor here in 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 China because they have beautiful milk that they ex- that they that they bring here. They have beautiful wine and a few other things that the Chinese just love and which keeps the New Zealand economy really robust. So much so that Peter Thiel like wants to go down there and retire. <laughs> <laughs> so you're seeing Australia and New Zealand shifting closer to China. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> What about the Philippines? The Philippines is a really interesting case because, you know, just last year uh, there was this uh, arbitration but the new president Duterte has seemed to have completely reversed the previous government's policies and has cozied up to China in, in quite a remarkable way i mean even to the extent of inviting china it's not quite clear if it's the chinese navy or um sort of civilian kind of fisher fisherman people to police pirates of the Philippines coast and has generally tried to make China fa- feel fairly comfortable around the Philippines how do you think China's relations with the Philippines are going to fare in the next couple of years especially bearing in mind Trump in the United States I think the Philippines you know I was probably a little strident about Australia and New Zealand I mean don't take me too seriously on that I mean but I do think that they are big prizes I think the Philippines is a little different it's a little bit it's a little different Duterte's shown every sign of just telling the United States to get lost and embracing embracing Beijing I saw him when he came here to Beijing last fall and he was certainly very solicitous of Xi Jinping and vice versa but I think we have to remember that there are I don't know the numbers but there are many many Filipino workers in the United States who send remittances back to the back to the Philippines and they are very 
loyal to the United States. I think there are a lot of people in the Philippines who are pro-American from many years ago, even though American, America was a, a colonial power there. Um, so I think it's, it's not quite so clear in the Philippines. I think also Di Lorenzo, the defense minister, seems to still want to have uh, the Americans uh, have access to the Philippine bases. I don't think that will be cut off, which is important. And things aren't quite settled at the Scarborough Shoal, which is the island in the South China Sea, where Duterte wants his fishermen to have access to inside the shoal to get to get fishing rights, and the Chinese haven't given that yet. So I think there'll be a lot of to and fro. I don't expect the Philippines to become a total Chinese satellite in the next few months. It'll take a bit more work. What about the rest of Southeast Asia? I mean... Vietnam uh, under Obama has been moving closer to the U.S., um, as has Burma, Myanmar. Um, Thailand in recent months seems to be moving closer to China. Um, all of these countries seem to have escaped Donald Trump's notice because probably he, he can't pronounce are. them. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> sorry, this is kind of partisan, I guess, but, you know... Fuck him. Um, <clears throat> but um, do the aggressive noises about the South China Sea that have been coming from the Trump uh, regime, I mean, uh, government, um, uh, uh, do they sound reassuring or frightening to Southeast Asian ears? I mean, do you think people in Bangkok and Hanoi, are they kind of freaking out because they don't know what Trump is thinking or are they thinking that, this guy will stand up to China and it'll be good for them. Or, well, talk you know, about, I, mean, or, I mean, what's going on? I mean, on? On the, with aggressive noises in the South China Sea, I mean, the Australians are freaking out about that. They don't want to go and join uh, the United States in having a blockade against the artificial islands. In fact, they told me they wouldn't even dream of it. So if they're against it and they've got the military hardware to do it and treaties, and treaties that almost oblige them to join the Americans there, I can't imagine what the Vietnamese and, and the Thais think. Um, Look, the th Thailand uh, has been moving closer to China since the military junta went in, and I think that that's, uh, that's going to become even more of a Chinese-influenced country. Vietnam is bitterly disappointed with Trump's uh, ca cancellation of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership because they thought that was going to help the economy. So it's, it, that's, that's gone by the by. Um, very, very harmful. Laos and Cambodia, they're basically... Yeah, they've always been in. Well, they've been until recent. They've been in the Chinese camp. Malaysia is moving closer to China. So I would say all of Southeast Asia, excluding uh, Singapore and Indonesia, are in a very good position for China. Okay, let's move north to the icy wastes of Russia. So, one possibility that some commentators have raised is that Trump's apparently insalubrious relationship with Putin is in fact a cunning strategy of triangulation to contain China, that just as Nixon and Kissinger cozied up to Mao, partly or perhaps mostly as a way to contain the USSR, a closer relationship between Russia and the US will reduce China's uh, geopolitical operating space. Does this sound at all likely to you? I'm not so sure. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. 
I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Trump not to do what he'd like to do with with Russia. And it's a bit of a mystery, you know. I mean, Trump said the other day he'd never met Putin. So what is this What is this love affair? Is it a love affair between Flynn and uh, some of the Putin operatives? Um, it may turn out to be that. Or it may turn out, if we ever see tr- Trump's tax returns, that he really was investing or doing financial deals with people in Russia. But in the end, I think that there'll be a lot of pressure from the Senate, from other areas in the United States for Trump not to consummate this this Russia-United States deal that that is supposed to fight ISIS and contain China. I think that there'll be instead a kind of more what's fashionably called a multipolar world. I maybe you don't want to answer this, but like I get the feeling sometimes that the the love affair with Trump and Russia is, is kind of racist, basically. Oh, definitely. It's like the yellow communists are not cool, but the white communists are cool. Kind of like, um, does, do you think there's any, any, I mean, am I wrong? Um, I was just in Hong Kong with uh, my colleagues, uh, correspondents uh, from the region for the New York Times. We had a, a yearly uh, conference where we get together and can you believe it we talk about future stories but one of the um, one of my colleagues who was there is going to join us in the Beijing Bureau he was recently the Moscow correspondent and uh, his conclusion is just that that it's uh, it's um, basically a, um, an alliance of a racist outlook that you know we're the white guys that can that can that can beat the hordes elsewhere <laughs> All right, more yellow people. Korean Peninsula. During the campaign, Trump seemed to think that Pyongyang's aggressiveness, its push to develop uh, long-range ballistic missiles, and of course its continuing nuclear ambitions were all things that China could deal with if it wanted to, and that managing of North Korea was really just a matter of deal-making with Beijing, that you could kind of say to Beijing, sort those North Koreans out. But... What is likely to happen on the Korean Peninsula under a Trump presidency? And, Good question. And, um, I do, I do um, wonder what went down in this. This would be a little convoluted. But this one China uh, back down uh, a couple of days ago, you have to wonder, you know, did Trump and his people really just say, okay, it's one China policy and not get anything from the Chinese? Did they not really say we need some give, we want something from you in return for publicly supporting your one China policy? And I wonder if the Chinese said to uh, Trump, okay, well, we'll do what we can for you with Kim Jong-un and we'll try and persuade him to uh, pull back on his his, uh, nuclear weapons, which would have been a nice gesture by the Chinese, but by the way, totally worth, worthless because I don't think the Chinese can live up to it. Um, but I do wonder if there was some kind of talk on the North Korea front there. Um, I think that the Chinese just want the status quo to a point. They seemed they seem to think that if Kim Jong Un develops these nuclear weapons, he's not going to turn them on China. Why they're so confident, I'm not so sure, and why they seem to be so blasé about having a fully weaponized neighbor who, with whom they have a fake alliance uh, on their border, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But I, 
I wonder if the solution isn't just direct talks between the United States and the North Koreans. I mean, the North Koreans would like that. They'd like a, a treaty that ended the uh, ended formally ended the North Korean the, the Korean War. Um, they'd like to talk to the Americans across the table. Maybe Trump will risk it. Do you think that's crazy? No, I don't. I mean, I, I actually think that the, the North Koreans have wanted that for a very long time, and uh, but it's kind of a sh- not a shibboleth. I don't know what's the word. I mean, you kind of can't talk about that in the U.S. But um, you know, Trump is such a maybe such, he can an do orth- it. An unorthodox person. Maybe he's the guy who can actually do it. Yeah, I mean, there will be silver linings. I think. Possibly. Maybe. Possibly. (laughs) Please. Please. Will there be silver linings? I hope. Um, So one of the most controversial and I think disgusting things uh, Trump has done in his three-week-old presidency uh, is to ban entry uh, to the U.S. by people from seven Muslim-majority countries. And, I mean, aside from the fact that I think it's just f***ing despicable... Uh, as a green card holder who lives in the United States now, I, I suddenly realized, oh, like, what if they decide South Africa is, like, dodgy? And after, like, I'm in Beijing, I'm supposed to go back next Thursday, maybe I'll get to the airport and I'll be like, oh, sorry, Mr. Goldcorn, you know, he has the anal probe or, you know, um, whatever they do. Um, um so Don't worry, I'm worried too. I'm a green card holder, and I've got an Australian passport, which is better. Than oh, that's than very I'm dodgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very dodgy. You, you, you. you as I said earlier, you are an implacable foe. I also have um, a British passport. That's also supposed yeah. to be well. Very anal good. probe for you, Jane. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, um, sorry. May winty. Um, so there was widespread outcry about this ridiculous executive order in the United States and beyond, but it was also supported very strongly by Trump's base and Trump's tough talk about Islamic extremists and terrorists uh, is no doubt one of the pillars of his worldview that gives him a, a lot of support amongst you know a fairly significant group of people in the United States. Even to a lot of Americans who don't find a lot else about him appealing, they kind of like the the idea that he's going to get tough with Islamic extremists. So, I mean, will he see eye to eye with Xi Jinping on this? Because China has, how to put it, taken an attitude towards its Muslim population and towards terrorism that, seems to be in some ways of a piece with this Donald Trump executive order to ban Muslims from seven Muslim-majority countries. I mean, how how might this affect U.S.-China relations? Do you think a Trump administration and Xi Jinping's government mind might find some common cause here? I don't think so, really. I mean, as you say, there seems to be some commonality. But look... There are big issues coming down the pike which are going to be very tough for China, and it's basically on trade and the economy. And this, Trump has, as much as he's um, 
based his campaign on keeping out the Muslims. He's also based his campaign on getting tough on China and imposing uh, a border tax and uh, demanding reciprocity. And we haven't seen that yet. I think that's partly because his his economic team is not in place. But he, as we all know, he's got a uh, Wilbur Ross is um, his trade person uh, is really firm on this. Munchen, his treasury secretary, seems to be pretty firm on this. I think there's going to be a lot of tough demands of the Chinese to open up their economy. To they're going, to, the Chinese are going to face tougher regulations on investment in the United States. A tougher CFIUS, which is the um, government board that has to approve huge uh, overseas purchases, is going to be toughened up, and I think the Chinese will have a tough time buying certain kinds of of industries and companies. So I think any commonality on the Muslim front is kind of is is kind of small. I don't really see that as a as a basis for anything terribly much. Might seem appealing. To us, it doesn't really make sense to me, but I understand your point. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we'll take、uh, questions from the audience.、Uh, and we're sticking in the Middle East because 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 it's so horrible to work out.、Um, so, will China face off、uh, against the U.S. in Israel? Last year in Cairo, Xi Jinping expressed support for East Jerusalem. Becoming the capital of Palestine, Trump has promised to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which will delight Israeli hardliners, but be seen as a real slap in the face by most Palestinians. Do you think this might become an issue where the U.S. and China end up having real disagreement? And does China have any kind of real commitment to the Palestinian cause? I don't think the United. I don't think China. Is interested in in getting involved in the Middle East in a in a political way or becoming a negotiator. I mean, okay,、uh, Xi Jinping was in Davos the other day saying, "I'm Mr. Globalization.、Uh, I'm the new I'm the new face. I'm the new leader of the world." But the last thing he wants to do is get involved in the Middle East.、Uh, he's interested in the Middle East for its oil, and he's interested in having.、Um, Uh, and they're building a base in Djibouti to make sure that their navy can reach there, and to make sure that the oil and and energy pipeline is good from the Middle East. But I think they're going to leave the heavy lifting on Middle East、uh, problems to others.、Um, I think、uh, they've been helpful on Iran sanctions. They'll pick and choose, but I don't see. Any real Chinese involvement in the Middle East in the foreseeable future? I mean, China's got got a deal with the United States on these economic issues, and he's got his own political issues at home. But the Middle East is kind of periphery; it's way way over here.、Um, so, before we have audience questions, is there any other kind of media bollocks we can dispel? Huh? Like about? <laughs> well,、China. I think it's. I don't know about.、Um, uh, I feel, in a way, as though I haven't been, I've been disappointing. I've been dis- disappointing and not sort of being a Trump basher.、Um, I no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did your share. It's fine. <laughs>、uh, I do see a rough, a, a rough、uh, a period ahead between the United States 
in China, Re- really, really rough. And I think that the countries in Southeast Asia are going to suffer for it. I think they're very nervous. And uh, as I said, I think that the situation in Australia is really worth watching. Watch this space. Okay. Well, now it is time for audience questions. Let's get back to Russia. Uh, all of the major uh, TV outlets in the United States about five hours ago came out with a story saying that Russia is thinking about making Edward Snowden a gift to Obama. Could you just identify yourself, sir? So yeah, my name this. is Mark, Mark Levine. And do you want any more? No, no that's, right. that's good enough. Okay, so uh, we, 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 we know we, we can look you up in the NSA database. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay, and then immediately following that, there were these other things saying, well, maybe this isn't really happening. But uh, it came out, all three of the big networks immediately came out. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know anything yeah, about this, so I'm sorry. I can't yes. really say. Any, by the way, it would have been a gift to Trump. You said Obama. You meant oh, Trump. Tr- yeah. I, yeah, a gift to Trump. <laughs> Obama would have accepted it, too. But, uh, yeah. So, nothing? No opinion? What do you think? I, I, I really... Fact-based journalist. <laughs> All right. Okay. No sorry, opinion. Sorry, sorry, I can't satisfy you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lulu. I'm a journalist covering from Brussels uh, for uh, Caixin Media here. And I feel obliged for, to ask questions for Europeans because it's not mentioned uh, during the questions yet. Uh, one of the sentiments I pick up from, Europe, uh, from Brussels is that uh, maybe Trump would make a lot of deals with many different countries, China, Russia, Africa, whoever. But Europe is out. That's sort of the sense of it. I wonder how... What is your take of it? Should China and the European Union have a sort of better, more a differentiated relationship in the future or not? Well, Trump has basically said that NATO is a waste of time and uh, the European Union is a waste of time too. But um, I think, again, he, the, the more sober side of his house uh, has, is, is going to... Um, is, is going to is going to prevail. I mean, Mattis, the defense secretary, is going to insist that NATO continue to exist, but they're also going to insist that the NATO countries spend more on their defense. I mean, you, you know all that. Um, I think that uh, from China's uh, uh, perspective, um, they're going to continue to try and buy all they can from Germany in terms of, of get acquiring uh, high tech by buying uh, important uh, important companies and they may get China may find some resistance there as uh, German Germany wakes up to finding that their valuable technology mm-hmm. is being is being bought off for the advantage of China um, so We'll see. I mean, I think uh, Trump wrote off Europe, but Europe still exists. Merkel is still very strong, and presumably she'll win the election. So um, there'll be—I think there'll still be a strong um, American-European relationship, uh, minus Britain. And China will—China will be in there as well. So it may 
it may not be as strong as it was between the United States and Europe. It may be sort of this more of this multipolar situation where Europe is is one part, the United States is another, and China China is over here. And it could follow up. Do you think the point of the chairs? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not, I don't follow French politics. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, I'm Desmond. I also write about. Uh, okay, I write about uh, international affairs, and uh, I just wonder what it's like to be a MIT bureau chief here in China, and also to be uh, more particular because I imagine you must be very excited. About things are getting tough between China and the U.S. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just um, to you know to to help you answer that question. How is it like to be a bureau chief in China? Uh, could you um, explain if there is going to be a trade war? How would you work on that? Well, fortunately, um, we have. Uh, I don't really want to duck your question, but I'm going to because I'm very lucky. Uh, the New York Times has a correspondent in Shanghai, Keith Bradshaw, who spent his entire reporting career covering trade. So uh, he's going to be doing all that nitty gritty trade trade war stuff. Um, Jane, Jane is just in the spa bath eating caviar and drinking <laughs> champagne. <laughs> Um, no. Yeah, uh, not really. I thought that's how you rolled at the New York Times. Yeah, I no. wish. <laughs> but uh, Keith and I were at this correspondence meeting that I uh, mentioned uh, in Hong Kong, which I mentioned a little earlier. And uh, boy, he knows the ins. He's known these Trump trade negotiators since he was covering trade in Washington twenty years ago. And when these trade these Trump guys, Lighthizer. Uh, Munchen, Navarro, he even knew in another, in another incarnation. So he's going to have this thing really wrapped up. And if there's kind of, if there's, if he needs a perspective from kind of, uh, geopolitical point of view, I can provide that. But, uh, on the nitty gritty of, uh, whether there's going to be, uh, border tax on this, this, this product or, or the other, that's all his. And what it's like to be a Beijing bureau chief? Um, the firecrackers. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It, it. it means it means quite a few visits to the foreign ministry to persuade them to give us more visas. Hi, I'm uh, Daniel Stitt. I am not a reporter. I'm just here. And welcome. Uh, Love having non-reporters. <laughs> Great. Real people. <laughs> well, real, so they say. But um, uh, what do you think uh, China's end goal is with their naval buildup? Do you think they're going to be more of a regional power still? Or do you think they have sites set for a global sort of police force in the future? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think the first aim is to be a regional, uh, a regional naval power, definitely. Um, I think the goal is to make the South China Sea the China Sea. And, uh, I think the goal is to be able to, be able to protect all of Southeast Asia and, and into the Indian Ocean for, for, for its own interests. And as you know, they are building this base in Djibouti. Um, which is the first, but not going to be the only one. If you read their language carefully, uh, they do plan to build others. Not clear where yet. Um, and in time, you know, I think they've pledged to build 
they've got one aircraft carrier and I think they've got two more under construction. So if they've got, say, four aircraft carriers and their attendant <clears throat> uh, ships that, that go with them, that's, 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 that's quite a bit of naval power. So I think it's a little early right now to say when they're going to jump from being a regional power to a more global one. But in the long term, probably a global one. Depends also what the United States does. Is the United States going to going to build up its navy, or is it as 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 Trump has pledged, or is the navy going to stay as it is, or slightly 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 decline? But if the PLA gets its way, and if Xi Jinping has a third term, um, I would see the <coughs> Chinese military getting stronger and stronger. Hi there, I'm Lily Pike, and I work at an environmental NGO here in Beijing. Uh, I have to ask the question that's weighing on my generation in particular, which is, uh, do you see uh, China taking up the international mantle on climate change in the wake of Trump? Well, I don't know about the international mantle. I, I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. But I do think that they're, obviously, it's no news to you, I think they're trying to be as serious as they can within the political constraints of doing some things at home to clean up the environment, and that's that's a good thing, isn't it? Do you think they're moving fast enough at home? No one's moving fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think uh, China's going to pick up the international mantle on the environment or anything else in the next, during the during the first Trump presidency, and God forbid if there's a second one. Uh, <laughs> um, I just don't think they have, they don't have the military power. To be a global power, you have to have military, you have to have military power, and they don't have that dominant military power by any means. Um, you have to have a very persuasive soft power, and they certainly don't have that. Um, those are just two of the elements. And you've got to have a big economic power. Now they have that, but is how, how consistent, how is that going, is, how is that, is that going to stay? So I think we're a long way off as, from seeing, um, China as an international mantle, Mr. Globalization. I'm not sure that that's going to come to fruition in the next, that's not going to come to fruition in the next four years. In answer to your question about whether, so I don't think, see them picking up the whole, Ballywick of the environmental program. I think they'll be supportive, but how far they'll actually push it. But uh, I mean, Jen, I think we have to just push back on one point: is like it's not just weighing on your generation. We're we're, we're planning to live till 150. So I, I hope so. We, it's, we need it's you weighing on, on our generation too. Okay, so just glad we're in this together. Thank yeah. you. I, I'd like to ask you a question. So you you work with an environmental NGO. Um, the new NGO law has just come down. Uh, are you able to stay here? What visa do you have? <laughs> so I didn't mean it in that way. I just meant since I mean since environment is a fairly neutral, good good governance thing. Are you able to stay? Are you able to stay? I'm optimistic that things will work out for all the international environmental NGOs in Beijing. I don't I don't know yet, but I'm optimistic that things will work out. I think it's an area of close cooperation for us. Well, that shows. That I, hope, the, I hope so, <laughs> personally. But, but, but that shows, don't you think, that the Chinese are interested in environmental good governance to a certain degree? I, I believe so. I just, I just don't know if they can fill the void. <laughs> That's the I agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hi, good evening, Salvador Perez. Uh, you already alluded to this. You mentioned. What do you? Are you a, a rep, are you a uh, lousy I'm, reporter? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm are you a good a reporter student. and a lousy a professional? Um, <laughs> you already alluded to soft power, and so during the Trump administration, what sort of soft power competitions or increases do you think China will be taking to kind of push out the U.S. in the region? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I'm just going to go back to. Australia, if I can. It's a lovely country. <laughs> I don't know. I left it many years ago, but I did happen just to be there. And um, I was really quite taken aback um, with how America's soft power there, and I think in other countries, under Trump, is diminished so fast. There is such a... Um, Loathing is not the right word, but disappointment that Trump is the president of the United States, that I think um, the United States prestige is so diminished that this is really dangerous for those of us who believe that the United States on the whole has been, on the whole, has been huge mistakes, uh, including the Iraq war and a few other things. Um, but on the whole has been a reasonable influence. So I think its um, influence is diminished uh, because of Trump. And I think China is learning some lessons. I think that they're very heavy-handed. So they tend to try and infiltrate the Chinese diaspora, which is uh, resented. They try to buy off Australian politicians. I'm now talking about the Australian situation, which is also not cool. Um, but if they played their hand a little bit more skillfully, they could make inroads. Now, whether they will, that's another question. I don't know that a regime like this is able to. But that'll be a very interesting question, I think. Thank you very much. Uh, Jane, I, I have a question for you before the next question, which is, um, so, I mean, I, I left Beijing in 2015, and I now live in Nashville, Tennessee. Trump country. Trump country. <laughs> so, I mean, I know a lot of people who are Trump supporters, and there are a lot of people who, I mean, don't strike me as that different from people you meet in China, who kind of feel that, okay, you know, Zhongguo... China should be strong. It's a very similar sentiment like a lot of people around where I live. I agree with you. It is quite striking. I mean, you know what's really striking to me? Our office is just across the street here in San Lutun, Soho. So we've been here in San Lutun, Soho for two years. You're wondering why I'm talking about this. Well, um, all these sort of gr groovy groovily dressed young Chinese, you know, more money, a uh, lot more confidence, copying the American way of dressing and liking American culture, but boy, they are real Chinese nationalists, and they really want China to succeed, and they really want China to sort of put the United States in its corner, so... Yeah, there is this kind of loggerheads coming up. So it, are all our complaints about Trump just because we're kind of liberal, like pussies from the bicoastal elites? New York, God forbid. New York, yeah. I mean, is there is there something in that that you know? You mean are we going to have a cultural war between well, the young, well, I mean, between we're, the we're, nationals we're, here and both the Trump you nation? and I have been really pretty anti-Trump this whole. Um, time the last hour and 
20 minutes. We've been kind of laughing at him. But, I mean, is this maybe not the normal state of human affairs? I mean, that in China, people have a certain um, kind of nationalism that is now finding its expression in the United States oh, and I hasn't don't. for a while. Mm, I, 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 look, I don't think that Trump is, the Trump situation is a normal situation. And I think Trump himself would say it's not a normal situation. I mean, he prides himself on being a disruptor and uh, changing and changing the whole ball of wax. So, um, it's, I, I think there is an interesting theme, though, in this idea of the national your your Trump people in the red states and the, the surge of nationalism among young people here. I don't know where that's going to lead, but there are similar 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 themes. Okay, let's take uh, another couple of questions. It's the time. Yeah, we've got two, Hi. T- two or three more questions. My name is Dali, and I'm not a journalist. Uh, so my question is, um, China has really, for the last few years, devoted a lot of political resources and economic resources in this uh, One Belt, One Road policy or strategy. So my question is, what do you think is going to be the long-term impact for China in those affected countries? And how do you think that will interact with this traditional American and post-colonial interest in those countries? Well, I think this Belt and Road project that um, uh, Xi Jinping announced, I was actually in the room in Astana in Kazakhstan in, in uh, September 2013 when As he announced the project. Hmm? <laughs> Happened to, I thought, gosh, Xi Jinping's going to Central Asia. I'll, I'll go along on a separate plane and see what he's got to say. And so he announced this project. Um, I think it's actually, so far, more talk than do. And uh, I just don't think we know where it's going to go. I mean, they say they're going to spend a trillion dollars on building uh, ports and rail and road that links Central Europe to Central, yeah, Central Asia to Europe and maritime equivalent. We haven't seen it yet, and uh, these these uh, projects are. Many of them are economically not feasible, and the banks here in China are complaining privately that they don't want to fund them. So I think a bit early to tell. Sorry, I don't want to duck your question, but I think that's the situation. They haven't built these things yet, and it's surprising to me, despite all the bluster, all the PR, all the talk that you know Belt and Road is, is China's big project. So show us. Do you agree with that or not? I think there are. I think a lot of is probably a lot of actions being taken on a project level, and uh, like lot, where? Well, Pakistan. Well, Pakistan. You might, you're right. Is one except is one exception. But that's that's a that's a that's a political strategic thing to try and stabilize Pakistan, and uh, and some of that. I mean, I think was uh, the projects were in place before the Belt and Road project. Thing right. was so announced. So, and then they said, okay, this is part of Belt and Road. But I mean, Pakistan has been going on for like a decade. But there, a lot of these companies are carrying with them financing capabilities, which is, allows them to do more projects than what they would normally do. Well, Gwadar Port, I mean, they've renovated Gwadar Port, but what's it, there's no connection between Gwadar Port and the border with China. And, it, and they're trying to build a road through tel- Taliban territory. I don't quite see how they're going to do that. So should we say two more questions? Three. Three, three more questions. Okay. 
Hi, my name is Cooper Boss. I'm, I'm not a journalist. Um, <laughs> is it, it, what, what, how did this become a thing? What, I don't know. It's like, I asked. It's my fault. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you, you alluded earlier to the fact that um, China, with the, the increasing presence of uh, their naval force buildup, especially regarding their aircraft carriers and the like, um, becoming a significant regional power to be reckoned with. What? particular event, or do you think that it's a rather a conglomeration of events that will lead to China becoming an international force to be reckoned with, globally speaking? Mm, I think I tried, I tried to say I thought they'd become a regional military power, but I doubted that they would become an international military power for quite a while. So if and when? I have no idea. Okay. Fine. I mean, you know, the economy could crash here tomorrow. I'm exaggerating. It's not true. Right, right. But I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't that? I can't, I can't foresee that. Okay. Thank you for your time. Sure. Hi, Jane. Um, I know many seasoned journalists are sitting over here, so as a lousy one, I can ask the one of those seasoned uh, sitting in the front. Uh, Ken Wei from CCTV, uh, now called CGTN. I'm a big fan of you because last time when the state visit from President Xi to Washington, you wrote many wonderful stories. Very interesting. Um, Thank you very much. Quick, but you know why? Do you know they weren't wonderful stories, but I, d I did do a sort of a little notebook following Xi around uh, the United when States. When I say wonderful, I didn't say uh, propagandic. I'm just saying wonderful stories. <laughs> but, but, so, but, no, but, uh, <laughs> but I just want to explain something. We were, if I can, I was able to write those stories because the Chinese um, foreign, foreign ministry, ministry made themselves available. Mm. And I think they realized that when they made themselves available and we reporters could actually ask questions and get answers and they opened up a little bit, they actually got some coverage, which was a little bit more human. I'm, I, I think they learned a lot from that and we learned a lot from it. I saw you and the spokesperson, Lu Kang, was sitting in the corner. I get really jealous of you at that moment. But anyway, you wrote wonderful stories for us. Anyway, <laughs> that I don't remember. So, okay. So quick uh, questions. One is, um, I understand right now in Washington Press Corps, uh, many news organizations have problems get access to the White House. We remember over the past two uh, big occasions, only New York Daily and also Fox News. Is New York Times worried about the future access of information considering this administration? I mean, right now you could interview the former officials, but... Tianwei, it's kind of like a Chinese foreign ministry briefing, right? Well, <laughs> well, well, no, no, it's not. It's not. Because we cannot always compare pears to apple. But I do want to know what is going on in the big apple. So, so that's one small question. And the second question, very small one also, is can we at this point with seasoned journalists as you, and I saw Melinda over there, my friend over there, and some of the others, be able to figure out what is the decision-making process at this White House. I know this is chaotic, but... Um, <laughs> I'm in Beijing. They're over there. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but I mean, 18 days passed. Can we see a little bit sign of things? Thank a little you. what of things? Uh, a little bit signs of logic, or are they streamlining a little bit? <laughs> no logic. Uh, no logic. Is this Saturday Night Live or what? <laughs> Thank you very much. It's James. a sign of logic. And I love your show. <laughs> Well, I mean, what a question. You ask what the, whether the New York Times is, has access. I mean, we're the failing New York Times of fake news, don't you know? 
fake. <laughs> Look, I'm here and they're all there. Um, <laughs> we have a couple of amazing political reporters, Maggie Haberman and uh, Glenn Thrush, who covered the uh, Trump campaign to, and before that have covered politics, national politics and presidential campaigns for many years. And they are totally amazing. And they have covered, I think, the first, what is it, 18, 20 days of the, of the, of the White House in, in an incomparable way, I mean, plus, plus others as well. But there are a couple of reporters who do have, who, do, who can get their phone calls returned, who do talk to people. So I think we do have a reasonable idea of what's going on, and you've seen it reported in the New York Times. So even though we're the failing New York Times of fake news, we're still able to uh, get in, get information. You had another question. Oh, well. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. We'll see who wins. It's going to be between uh, Bannon, who's sort of a few yards away from the Oval Office, um, who. I understand, I, I don't know if it's actually true, but there are reports yesterday that he had turned down Tillerson's choice for Deputy Secretary of State, Elliot Abrams, that Bannon had, had, had uh, vetoed this. Elliot Abrams, yes. Um, so how long is Tillerson going to put up with Bannon's veto power? I do think, though, in the end, that Tillerson and Mattis are you know, experienced people, I mean, running Exxon is like running a major country in the world. Uh, so, you know, one assumes that they are going to prevail, or if they don't, they're going to leave. They are adults, e even if you don't like their kind of pro-oil right-wing choices, but at least they are adults. I th you know, I, th I think that Tillerson will be... Uh, um, I, I, you know, I think he's going to shed his his Exxon mantle, and I think he'll be um, probably he could be a very good Secretary of State in the in the mold of George Shultz. I mean, George, I covered uh, the State Department. I'll be very quick about this in the late '90s and early 2000s. I was I had been a foreign correspondent, and the executive editor came to where I was and said, "Okay, you've got to come back to Washington to cover the State Department." So I did it, screaming and yelling. But a very good friend said, "You have to read George Schultz's memoirs. He was the Secretary of State under Reagan. They, they, it's an amazing book. I mean, it's very, very relevant today. Do you know what he says in there?" He says that every afternoon he would have to get in his car at the State Department and drive over to the White House to undo the damage that Point Dexter and Allen and the other crazies who were in the White House as national security advisors had put in Reagan's ear in the morning. And he would go over as the adult in the afternoon and undo all of that stuff. And because he was the adult, he mostly succeeded. So one assumes that that's going to be, one hopes that that's going to be the pattern here that they prevail. Otherwise, I can't see how, as you know, as, as you know, men of experience, they can, they can stay there. So Trump's going to have to make a choice. And I suspect that he's going to make the choice with Madison, Mattis and Tillerson because he has in the first few days of his administration. Actually, when you look at it very coldly, he's embracing Japan, even though he dissed Japan in the, uh, during the campaign. He made the phone call to Beijing. Um, he's done various other things that uh, sort of put him back more into, into the mainstream. How long that's going to stick and 
I think it will probably stick enough to save us all from disaster. Maybe they can go in the morning. I think that uh, I think that Tillerson and Mattis will be over there in the afternoon, undoing the trouble that done in the morning. Is this our last question? So you have a huge responsibility here. Okay. Um, thank you for giving, uh, giving me this opportunity. Uh, my name is Chow Yi, and I'm a reporter too, but I'm based in New York. Um, uh, so during the election night, I was at uh, Hillary's victory party. And during that live, um, live broadcast, like, I remember, I'm not sure, like, is it NBC or CNN was, like, interview one girl from um, Michigan, I think. And then when she talked about, you know, Trump going to make America great again, then all these people around me started to say, what an idiot. Do you, does, she, does she know what she's talking about? And then at that moment, I feel like, wow, okay. And I'm a foreigner. I'm Chinese. And I was there to cover the event. Who are you covering it for? Um, I cover for Global Taishin, um And after the election, I visit Jansville in Wisconsin. Jansville. At that place, it's a Trump place too. So I met a lot of people whose life been impacted by um, the GM plant get closed, and they have all these problems. And they share what they thought about Trump, about the economy, and everything. At that moment, I start to you know to realize the other another America that I don't really understand. Like because I studied Syracuse, Maxwell, and I started work. I based in New York, and that was an America that. I don't think I understand. You're surrounded by bi-coastal elites, is what you're saying, yeah. right? And um, the after after that experience, I, I wrote a story about that. And I after that, I watched a documentary. Um, it was about a divided America. In one um, one of the feeling I got is that U.S. is no like not like one country, but a country with like two group of people, and they have different. Um, methods to get informations, especially like in that documentary, they show all this like um, right wing media or like um, radios. They got all this information fit into all this group of people. They look at Obama a different way, look at American politics in a different way, look at the issues in different ways. And my question is, like you know, in this new era, Breitbart or Fox News, they're gonna got a lot of like new access to um, the this information competition and as new york times as um, um you work for new york times did you see the failing it? new york times <laughs> i love new york times and i my question is like in this new time new era how's what what's new york uh, what's new york times plans to do to uh, cover the america uh, american news to to expand your reader and do you believe that media can like, you know, right information, facts can really bring America together, be one country instead of being, you know, a divided two country. I'm here in Beijing. You have to ask my bosses how they're going to come up with the I'm sorry, I can't really answer that. But as a for like as a green card holder, how do you you know, like this My being a green card holder doesn't really have anything to do with anything. No, no, like um, how do you feel about this divided country? I was just curious about like... How Look, I'm in China to cover China. I really can't 
give you a sensible answer about the United States, but Jeremy lives there at the moment, and maybe he can. Yeah. How do you think yeah, about that? Yeah. <laughs> that, thanks, Jane. Put it on me. Good trick. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Uh, I think uh, it's impossible to unite the different opinions currently in the United States. People are in their bubbles, and that's just what we have to deal with. Um, most of my American friends that I met in Beijing are from uh, California or the Northeast. And I currently live in a place that they all think is like full of terrible rednecks, even though it's not completely. Um, um, and I, I think it'll, yeah, it's, it's, it's not very easy. Uh, it's not that different from the way Beijingers think of Waidiran. Like in Beijing, like most Beijingers or people who have good jobs in Beijing look down on anyone who doesn't have a good job or isn't from Beijing. Um, and you have the same thing in the United States. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. My hometown, Johannesburg, South Africa, is the same. So the world is f***ed. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me let me say this, though. Um, the, the failing New York Times with fake news is really happy. Failing. Sad. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> so sad. We're quite happy about Donald Trump. We've uh, gained 250,000 new subscriptions since Election Day. <laughs> and every, every time he mentions the failing New York Times, we get more. Failing. Sad. So, <laughs> so keep it up. <laughs> okay. Um, Thank you. Let us give a huge round of applause to Jane Pallas. Rockstar foreign correspondent. To Jeremy. Rockstar foreign correspondent. Jane Pallas, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy, and welcome back to Beijing, your real home. I love it. You know, when I arrived here on Tuesday night, it was like polluted, and I got out of the plane, I was like, oh, God, I love that smell. It's so, oh, I like it so much. And then it cleared up, and it was like all this blue sky I mean, you're in a red state in the United States. You should come back to Beijing. I should, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Jane. Another round of applause for Jane. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina and produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News. Special thanks this week to Peter Goff from The Fabulous Bookworm in Beijing and to David Moser for tech support. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SupChina. And apologies that I wasn't able to make it back to Beijing in time for our show with Jane Perlez. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.